What's going on, everybody? It's the Fly Life Podcast, episode 23, and I'm your host, Martin Novak. For this week's guest, I have Gab707 on the show, which is truly an honor. He's such a legend, and I don't think he really needs too much of an introduction. You guys all know him. Uh, I had never met Gab before, but we met at the Tiny Whoop Invitational and got to talking, and uh, yeah, he was down to come on to the show. And here we are after he got all his traveling done. Uh, we talk about so many things. I had so many questions to ask him. I don't think I even covered like half of what I wanted to. Um, he's so knowledgeable and so dedicated. But we talk about real steady, um, racing, the future of FPV, 5-inch, 6-inch, all the way up to 8-inch builds, um, capturing action sports with FPV, a whole plethora of things. Uh, it's a great episode. I don't see how anybody would not like it. It's Gab talking about FPV. Hope you guys enjoy it. Cheers. This is the top secret quad. Oh, nice. Perfect. We can put an embargo date on it. <laughs> no, it's just the the frame. Uh, I think um, Andy just wants to do a few more, like, um, how do you call it? A few more tweaks on it. Uh-huh. And wants to get his production running and stuff before we launch it. But it's like a, it's a filming quad. It's like the Ichabod. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Yeah, yeah. So the Ichabod, you, isn't that what you did one of those snowboard videos on? Yeah, I did the one last year. Yeah, yeah. And the ones this year are coming out of this one. It's basically an Ichabod for 5-inch. And um, how do you feel about the FPV cam being off to the side like that? Uh, it's no big deal. Uh, but this is actually a prototype. Uh, the official one is actually on top. And was there a reasoning for going off to the side at all? Yeah, just to get it away from the, the lens. Oh, uh, okay, cool. And how do you it like... It was actually stacked here, just to be like really small and compact here, and not yeah. be this giant, big, enormous thing. Blob. How do you like having the FPV cam above the GoPro? No big deal. You don't notice much about it? Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, for filming, it doesn't really matter, because I'm... Mostly, let's say, flying slower and trying to be uh, all cinematic and shit. Yeah, super calculated. Um, you know that stuff. Do you? What, what do you think the benefits are of running the FPV cam above the GoPro? Um, well, your your GoPro is like sc- scraping the ground, which is always a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> the GoPro is the one that's gonna look the craziest uh, instead of the FPV. Um, it may just feel weird because you're not used to, like normally I'm used to having the, the FPV camera at prop level Yep. on my racer quads, but, uh, I mean, this isn't a racer quad, so. Yeah. And it's pretty purpose built too. It seems like. Yeah, for sure. This is, I mean, you could freestyle with this. Uh, you couldn't really with the Ichabod. The Ichabod was a bit too big and bulky, um, because it was six inch. Um, with plenty of clearance, whereas this is like minimal clearance, just enough, just what you need so that you don't get shit in props and view. And still but, six uh, inch, yeah. I take it? No, this is five inch. Five. five. And in, um, so do you prefer five inch over six inch, like if you had a choice for the most yes. part? Yeah. Definitely. Um, do you just think it flies better? Yeah. Yeah. No, six inch, six inch is good. Uh, if you have a high-powered setup and you have the setup for it. And some of them work really well, but they, they're they just uh, exposed. Like when you expose it to wind, 
and stuff like that, it just doesn't respond very well. Five inches just, I think all the electronics as well are just geared for that uh, these days. So anything five inch just works wonders, usually out of the box and yeah, simpler. Yeah. And what kind of flight times do you get out of your five inch setups? And like what kind of batteries like do you ten, run? 10 minutes if I want to, if I run a big battery. How big of a battery so, are we talking? An 1800 success. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty big. I've been dabbling in 2205 cells on a five inch in like these last two weeks. Yeah, that's probably, you could fly that long too if you wanted. Yeah, it's been, I, I mean, I've done like five, five to six minute flights with it with like plenty of room to spare, but it's definitely opened up a whole new bunch of lines and stuff like that just in my own area. Oh yeah. I mean, you just have space to do it, right? You're not sort of feeling confined by, hey, I'm just going to fly out and then it's just not, <laughs> I just need to really think about it. Like when I'm coming back and then I just make it back, it just doesn't put you in a good spot. If you have just a bit more leeway, it just gives you that extra safety. Definitely. And I feel like you can shred a bit more when you're going up the mountain. Whereas like with a four cell setup that I was used to flying, it was more of like a chairlift ride to the destination <laughs> and, and then like a rip back down. That's it. Exactly. And then if you get too excited on the way down, uh, you're going to have, you're going to be walking. Yeah, definitely. Nobody, nobody likes hiking. Um, in terms of prop size too, like you've dabbled in the six and seven inches, right? Like tried them out. Yeah. And uh, what about mm -hmm. eight or like 10 inch gone that big? I've never tried it. No. And uh, what are your thoughts on like the seven inch? That seems to be a pretty kind of hype thing right now. I think it's a good thing as well. It's like six inch. So if you have the quad built for it, it flies pretty well. But a lot of people seem to think that, oh, I need to make my build super light and uh, super efficient on seven inch. The problem is... It's a huge disc area, and there's not much weight to it, and it's just going to get thrown around in the wind. Um, so if you want good footage, you probably need to build a heavy 7-inch, so a beast. And yeah. uh, something like the um, like the, the Project 399 Super G Plus works really well with that because it's built to be, uh, to be this hefty thing. And then if you slap on the giant battery on it, you put on some props which are not uh, too prone to jello or stuff like that. Um, I think you can get some some good footage. Um, like I personally just fly more more six inches just because uh, Azure makes six inches and they haven't um, brought out a seven inch yet. But um, yeah, things are. I haven't said my last word on that. Yeah. Do you do you ever run? Do you just run the six inch props on the seven inch frames, or do you like having a smaller disc area, or like as small as possible? I like the that that quad flies really well on six inch on the seven inch quad. Um, usually, all quads that are just bigger and have smaller props um, just fly a bit better, just because um, you know the props aren't uh, causing turbulence uh, on each other, so it's pretty pretty mellow, and uh, you can you get better better handling overall. Uh, better efficiency but um yeah i mean it's just a matter of uh of time i guess yeah definitely and i think like you said i mean things are seem to be a bit more tailor-made for five inch setups and it's like the easiest setup you know for like the masses to have to just get a bigger battery and go rip a little bit further for sure but everybody just thinks that yeah you probably need this giant quad to fly the distance but honestly you can do a lot with a five inch and just a big battery and just some management uh it's totally fine uh, but I, I don't know people seem to think that oh because i make these long range videos that i 
you know, spent all this time researching crazy, you know, these the, the ten tricks that nobody knows that uh, that make me <laughs> yeah. so much better. To be to be very honest, I just like grabbing a quad and going flying. I just I hate spending ages to twiddling about and then trying a thousand different things. I just want to go out and fly and have fun and work more on um, on the creative side of things, like how do you how you fly, how you how you uh, create a visual story of of your flight, right? And that's I think that's the harder part than than just putting the right parts together. Has it always been like that for you? Or when you first got an FPV, were you, you know, like trying a bunch of stuff and seeing what worked and what didn't, and then you kind of got sick of it over time? Or have you always been on the, like, I just want to fly more kind of page? I don't know. That's hard to say. I think I think there's been a dabbling. Obviously, everyone needs to spend a bit of time on researching. But the truth of the matter is I tend to do a lot of stuff, uh, even just with drones. You know, there's the racing, there's the long range, there's uh, more freestyle things, there's trying this prototype, trying that prototype for different manufacturers. So I don't really have that much time where I can just sit down by myself and just, hey, let's try to make a really good seven inch yeah. you know, setup and then try, you know, a whole bunch of, you know, flight controllers, a bunch of motors, a bunch of props. Um, I don't know, all the, the flying that I get to do these days is more usually very geared towards either I'm training hardcore or I'm out on a shoot and I don't even go out and fly just for fun. So the only time I have like these days is like when I'm going out to make something, something cool or in a nice spot. It's is I'm going out to to shoot content. I don't just go out and and just I don't know fly around for fun for for like a bunch of packs. Or if it does, that it only happens very rarely. Let's put it that way. Yeah, definitely. I think that changes a lot over time for people, especially depending on what your agenda with FPV is. It just kind of happens. But it's pretty fun to see to watch like some of the people in the community uh, who who have put in the time and suddenly who come out with these really cool suggestions and things that I think hey hey I think you know I was thinking about doing that like three years ago but I never did it and this guy tried it and yes it works oh I could have done it <laughs> yeah but um, it's 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 great to see things uh, moving evolving um, and being a part of it yeah I feel like it's a pretty I mean, we've been saying this for like two years, but it's still a crazy time for FPV. I think now it's like a bit more maybe less about like the hype of where it's all going because it's kind of starting to settle. But like the technology and the flight feel and all that stuff is going through the roof right now, I think. Yeah. And dude, if I if I like, you know, back in the day had the setup that I have today and you could just pick it up buy this kit. Oh, man. I feel like I spent so much of my time just, you know, mucking around with setups that didn't work. Uh, you know, I, my first quad was like a bunch of carbon plates that I borrowed from like Hobby King. You can, they were like for a helicopter or something. And then I slapped together these little wooden sticks. You slap those in and uh, it, it, it just, the thing would just break, obliterate itself like every time. They had like these tiny, what, 1804 motors, like 50, 30 props, gem fans. You, you hit any twig, pow! Now yeah. the quad was down. And yeah, it's it like the, so terrible. It's like the 2015 <laughs> of like dollar an hour versus flight time ratio was horrible. Like for every dollar <laughs> and like for every time you had a solder, you got like two packs in before you were back at it. Yeah, it was just so crazy. And now, nowadays you just, you know, get one quad and I, I can do like a whole flight session on one quad and slam it into a wall, uh, you know, tumble it down cliffs, just change out the props and go again and, and just not worry about it. So... There's definitely been a huge improvement. Huge, huge. Yeah, like even just being able to hit a tree branch and fly back without like shattering all four props in one little like 
dinky tag, you know, just like dink a tree branch and your whole quad just explodes. <laughs> the old HQs yeah, and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great that things are moving and that we get so many options as well. Like all the manufacturers have good options, alternatives. So um, it's just up to the, uh, you know, the consumer to make the best choices and make things uh, move forward. Do you think the consumer is doing a good job of that? Like putting in feedback to steer the the industry in like a good productive way? Or do you think there's kind of like some negligence and like hype and uh, just getting products out and stuff like that? That one's a hard one to answer because um, sadly our mini quad industry is very small. So we're just a bunch of passionate people and um, passionate people who just want answers and want the best flying rig one are looking for that, you know, to experience that perfectly flying quad as if, as if it had just came out of a sim or something. And uh, the truth of the matter is, you know, physics is very complicated. That goes around and some conditions work well, some conditions don't work well. And um, yeah, so sadly, the, the market is sort of driven by um, by hype and what people try to sell. And that's that is, you know, a reality, sadly. But, you know, there is it's not all all black. I mean, some part of it, I'm for sure is driven just by by what you need by selling stuff. But you need to sell stuff because when you sell stuff, uh, manufacturers can do more research, can invest more into bringing out new products. Um, I don't think anyone is becoming a millionaire out of, you know, selling quad parts. So it is a very if, small if, market. If they are, they're playing it pretty <laughs> low key. <laughs> right. Uh, so it's a small market and everybody, uh, I, I think it's a good thing that, you know, people are, are you know, that some companies, you know, get enough market so that they can keep pushing the the industry forward and innovate and push it, you know, uh, come up with new things. And uh, because there is a lot to be done, like I don't know, ESCs, flight controllers have made a huge jump in the, in the past um, in the past year or two. But there's still a lot of things to be done. More uh, motors have barely moved, like in I think a couple of you know two three years. There's just we've had like more powerful magnets, which make them more powerful. Sure, great. Uh, but I'm sure there's more research to be done, and um, you know it's just a matter of time before all these things come out. And if you can convince people to sort of consolidate um, behind companies that do R&D and research, um, then you can move things forward faster than if you were if you're let's say just scattered around uh, with you know. <laughs> random retailers who, who sell little things uh, out of China at, and just cut the price. And I don't know, it's, it's, it, there's a whole debate to do here. Yeah. I mean, I think morally and like ethically, right. That's the route. Like if you can do it, support the companies that, you know, put the money back into our industry in some way. But, you know, like, I think we've all been like a broke 18 year old college kid before too. Absolutely. Me, me in the first place. Right. I, I honestly wanted to start with uh, aerial photography, and I just looked at it. Oh, a thousand bucks for like one of those, uh, you know, camera drones, DJI, whatnot. And not, not, no, I, I didn't have that kind of money, so I just went on the the cheapest Chinese website and bought bought a bunch of parts, and um, went from there. But you know, having done this, um, I think I can look back to it and say, well, back in the day, it was probably the right solution for me because. It got me to experience what it is, what it's all about. And I think that's something that's very important to someone who's starting out. You need to know and feel what this is about. 
and how, you know, what it does for you, and if you really want to pursue this. But once you've decided to pursue it, I think it's important also to um, to get gear that really works because you spent a lot of time, um, you know, losing, you're just losing your time. Um, like, you know, VTXs that started, I had, I bought crappy VTXs from China and they did just, just did not work. Yeah. I flew out, you know, 30 feet and the video would cut out. And I get comments like that on my Instagram of people, hey, uh, how you fly so far up the mountain? I fly out 30 feet. I have no more video. Well, um, I don't know. Get get good gear. Um, <laughs> you know, your car doesn't drive 100 miles an hour oh, on, on the highway. My car just starts shaking around. Well, did you? Yeah. Yeah. Just buy a car that, you know, works. It's it's that simple sometimes. Yeah, I think it's, it's also maybe harder for people to grasp, too, because, you know, like, to the layman person, a crappy VTX compared to a Unify, it doesn't really look that different, you know, like, like a car has more like tangible reference points where you can be like, oh, the body panels match up a bit better, like, you know, it drives a bit better, like a VTX, you know, you're talking like double the price for some of these, like, or like half the price for some of these cheap VTXs, and it really does take like what you were talking about, like, five burnt ones, and then you're like, okay, I'm just gonna try the better one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the truth is, you know, some of the, some of these electronics, like you keep them for years. Like, um, like I think you know, Team Black Sheep, TBS come out with VTXs faster than I can I build quads. I still have, I'm still like three models or four models behind. Um, so these things last, and if you just buy the right ones, and I'm not saying you need to buy TBS. There's other companies that make great gear. Um, you you'll have a good experience, and you just keep them for ages, and it, they're worth your investment. Yeah. Um, if someone was to be getting into it and like needed to skimp on something, where would you say it would be better to spend more money and where would you say it's better to save money? Like getting into mm. the hobby. I feel so globally, I think that the hobby is relatively easy to get into. If you compare this to any type of motorsport, um, talking <sighs> yeah, like a zero to less, if you're getting into any type of, I don't know. I don't know what you could be getting into. Even like mountain biking, uh, skiing, like that's mountain like, biking. That's you know over a thousand, several yeah. thousand bucks that you have to get out uh, every year um, to get gear running. And honestly, like a half decent setup with a thousand bucks to two thousand bucks, you have a pretty solid setup that I would be ready to take and go out the mountain and make a YouTube video out of. And so it's not it's not a huge investment. And I think it's easy to make that that um now if you do want to if you're like a, a broke college kid and you only have a few hundred bucks and for sure yeah those people um are around and uh, they will have also an amazing experience um i would then start you know looking at maybe smaller quads like a tiny whip or something are way you know in order of magnitude cheaper you still need goggles and you still need a remote but you can you can get a really good high-end setup and have a good time with that um now if you wanted to go on the bigger ones i don't know Probably the goggles. I don't think you need the high top of the line fat trucks to fly. Many um, of those box goggles are pretty good, and you just saved yourself, you know, five hundred bucks there. Um, yeah, box goggles for sure, especially if you wear glasses. Yeah, good... especially for those. And then on the quad itself, um, you know, like some of the, I'd say some of the very high end carbon frames can be very expensive but they're also cheap ones that are really good and really durable like the the radiomate rc screech like is one of that i flew i think for a whole year it's a freestyle frame and it's like 30 bucks yeah 
yeah, beat that. Even, that's, even that's China, a, yeah, <laughs> China, Shenzhen can't beat that. <laughs> right. And, um, but then what is there else? I guess motors, do you need really high-end motors? Maybe not. I, I think some of the, some of the, the I'd say like ones, middle of the pack maybe is a good, middle of the pack. Yeah. Yeah. What about batteries? Do you think you get a real big upgrade with dollars put into batteries? Huh. That yes, yes, I think so. Um, but I I push my batteries to the limit. Um, if you're a beginner who just comes out and just wants to have the experience, and I think you can definitely save um, on getting cheaper batteries. Um, I push my batteries always to the limit because I always fly them from fully charged to fully depleted and that's when I land or I'm, you know, ripping down the mountain at high throttle values or I'm doing really aggressive uh, racing stuff. Um, I think the better, the better battery you can get, the, the better you're going to fly. And there's just no, well, you know, in my, in my perspective, you know, in my style and in what I do, just the better the battery, the better it is, um, the better discharge. Yeah. Definitely. But I guess, yeah. But then where you don't want to skimp on, so, if you want to fly like I do, well, you can probably going to need a better battery if you want to be aggressive. But then you can, you know, I say flight controller, ESCs, uh, VTXs, cameras. I mean, cameras are relatively standard FPV cameras. There's not anything super cheap. You just get, you know, a decent brand. And um, yeah, on those stuff, I don't think you should, you should save. There's like standard, and you just get the standard, and that's it. Yeah. And you'll probably hopefully be replacing it. Like the motors, you might be, you know, like that's on the outside of the quad. You might be breaking those more often, but like a VTX and a cam, depending on your frame, might be in there for a while. Yeah, you'll you'll run through two, three frames and be using the same the same electronic. I've i I do that with my racing quads. I usually destroy the frame and the motors, and then just take what was in the inside, just pop it on a new one, and off we go again. And no more gremlins. <laughs> yeah, there you yeah. go. Um, when it comes to flying long range, have you, do you do all your stuff on 5.8 video or do you ever dabble in 2.4? No, just everything 5.8. 5.8 is very reliable and like you, you know, legally, legally and practically, you should always be keeping your quad in visual line of sight. And as long as your quad is in visual line of sight, so just for those who don't know what that is, it just, that means that there needs to be a line, uh, for you to be able to see the quad, you can't fly behind a hill, you can't fly behind a whole forest, you can't fly behind a mountain. You should always be able to see your quad. And um, yeah, as long as you keep in that sort of range, 5.8 is plenty, plenty. Yeah. Do you run like 600, 800 milliwatt or like do anything crazy or just standard setup with a long antenna that gets up and above everything? Yeah. Big, you know, good antennas. Uh, you know, powerful receiving antennas, patch antennas um, work really well. Um, you don't really need that much power. I sometimes bump my power just to have to be safe. But I've, I, we actually did it once in, uh, I was in Austria. And I think my, my crossfire was like on 25 milliwatt and my VTX was on 25 milliwatt just because I was just came from a race. And we sent it up the mountain. <laughs> we're going, we're going, we're going, we're going. And then at some point at the very top, it starts getting a bit crackly. This is not normal. Normally, you know, I don't know. I've I've seen it be better. And then realized it was on 25 milliwatts. You can go very far on 25 milliwatts uh, with just a decent setup. I should I should make a video about that. You like, should, because I think that's a really, you know, I think it goes along with what you're talking about. Like, I get a lot of questions, too, that's like, hey, what's your favorite 7-inch frame? Or, like, what 6-inch frame should I build for this? And it's like... 
you know, if you've never flown out like a half a mile and just turned around and looked back at yourself with an FPV lens, like it feels like five miles when you do it for the first time. Like it feels so yeah. far. <laughs> um, and that's even just with like a regular 4S kind of battery. And if you get like a six inch or even just a bigger battery, like not to say it's like overwhelming, but you can definitely feed your fix of covering ground, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. With any, even even a three inch, I'm pretty sure you could fly out, you know, a mile with a three inch and come back. It does doesn't the gear does not matter. You make it happen, not the quad. Yeah, that that should be like the 2019 underlying theme of FPV. Like all the companies support <laughs> that theme. <laughs> but it's hard though because you know everyone wants to wants to sell gear. As I was saying, you know, you sell gear, you can make the industry move forward. And yeah. Um, if you if you if you have a good setup, stick to it. Usually is a good one too, because uh, you learn to to you know to master it. You learn its flaws, but you also learn its strengths, and you can work around that and make something great out of it. Look at you know people like um, I don't know Steel, who's um, Mr. Steel. I think has the same you know ninety percent the same setup in like in, for what three years now. Yeah, it, he hasn't really changed setup. Like I've I've changed quads frames like every year. I'm, I go through like two or three different models of of different things, uh, because I try things because I'm I guess curious. But it, once you have this, if you have the same setup, you just work on your skills and you, you you can push those further. You can you can push the thing to the limit, and that's that's something very honorable. Yeah, and I think it you know it adds to like the confidence side of like the mental game. Like if you have a setup that works really well and you're used to it and you're not thinking about it, then it just clears up that one fraction of your mind to focus on what you're actually doing. Like if you got some weird huckabucks or like wobbles and every time they happen it breaks your concentration or if you don't trust your video, you're kind of thinking about it a little bit in the back of your mind, stuff like that. Absolutely, and that's one of the big one of the the, the key factors I guess I'm you know, I'm trying to work on more now is, you know, how do you, yeah, how do you tell a story with your quad? How do you make videos that say something? How do you, it's not just about flying. Um, it's about expressing something. And the more you know your setup, the more you get the technical side out of things, the more you can just work on, on that, on, you know, how, what, what, how are you inspired? Like if you were, if you were a skater or whatnot, you, I don't think you would change you know the 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 board length, for example, like you like yeah. long board, a short board, and then different trucks all the time. You just take the same board and then try to nail your tricks and try to be inspired with that. That's a big quarter pipe. Give me a six footer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it seems like in the in the industry in the hobby, everybody just feels like they need you know five, six, seven different types of quads for for different things, and I'm I'm not sure that's always relevant. Yeah, I don't think so. I think, you know, there's two sides. Like, I think you should have one quad that, you know, flies the same every time you pick it up or, like, a set of them or whatever. I like to have, like, my go-to setups that, you know, I'm just super in tune with and then have, like, a rotating where I'm trying stuff, like a selection of yeah. quads where I'm kind of dabbling. But I don't if, – if I'm, like, going to fly for the purpose, they're not the quads I take. <laughs> they're, like – Yeah, I, I – yeah, if you want to do long range, especially, you need to have something that you can just trust and know it's going to get the footage for you. And the more I do, you know, I do all sorts of um, shoots um, uh, involving mini quads, and even for, for those, it's really a big, a big deal. Make sure that you, know, you go out and the footage is going to come back good. And that honestly is hard to guarantee with a mini quad because there's so many little variables and things that could go wrong. Uh, you need to trust the equipment. 
Yeah, let's talk about that for a sec. Did you, like, what was your first mini quad shoot? Was it the Shredbots snowboard thing? Oh, man, I think that was... <laughs> that was quite the experience. The first shoot I did for Shredbots, I think it was, well, I'd say one of my first major ones, let's put it that way. But it was it was a crazy, crazy experience. Like, you sort of, we were talking back and forth with, uh, with Torstein Horgma, who's Shredbots. And um, at some point it was like, okay, well, uh, it's sort of the end of the season and there's only like these sort of windows where the weather's good. And uh, one nice day it was like, okay, um, can you come out in two days? Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I can, I, I guess I can make that happen. And come out <laughs> and to where, from where? Like what was the travel I distance? was in Montreal and it was out, let's come out to, uh, to Whistler and then can you come out? Um, so it was, you know, it's like a six hour, five, six hour flight. So, yeah, sure, okay, I don't really have much time. Uh, okay, how much time you got? I have, like, you know, a, you know, two days, like a day and a half. I need to work here until, until like, 5 p.m., and then I can get on the flight. Um, and then and the next day was the good weather, so that's what I did. Like, I left, I worked all day, uh, got on my flight, arrived in, like, in, um, in Vancouver, probably, like, 11 at night, and then... You know, there's like a Whistler, another two-hour drive. So by the time I was in Whistler, it was, you know, in the middle of the night. And then next morning, got up. I hadn't met anybody yet, right? It was just sort of, hey, you know, there's, you get dropped off there, go to that address, go up the stairs, there's a room on the right. Okay, I did that. I got there. <laughs> <laughs> next morning, get up at five. I uh, met up with one of the guys. We hopped in a helicopter. I still hadn't met uh, Torstein uh, yet. And then we got dropped, both of us got like dropped off at the at the top of this mountain, beautiful day. And I uh, still had to met the guy I was I was here to, to shoot with. <laughs> and then out they come. In the very back, you see the, the skidoos coming up on the, and the sleds. And then that's when I finally met them. That was, that was the start of the adventure. But then, yeah, you're, you're uh, you know, a whole day or more of travel away from home. Heli with, with a plane. Uh, all sorts of driving, a heli, and then some sledding, and then you get to the area and you're supposed to shoot, and and then yeah, then you need to film, and then that's when your your quads need to work, and then imagine you roll up and then something doesn't work. You know what? The first thing that happened, I was unable to fly because it was there was so bright. I took off and my lens just was white, just completely washed white. out. Well, it washed. It was too bright. Yeah. <laughs> there's the, there, there was sun, there was the snow, and everything was white. So they were like, yeah, there's going to be this, like, in-run, and then you chase us down, and then we jump, and then, yeah, you, you do the thing. And I was, I, I couldn't see the ground. It was just white. I tried, I tried like, looking at them, and you just see complete white and then a black dot. <laughs> just so anyway, floating like, in hey. space. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I, like, oh, what do I do? And then I had, like, a marker. I tried to, uh, like... Um, basically what I needed was an ND filter for my lens. I didn't have one. Um, so, uh, I, uh, I, I tried like with a marker pen, I tried to like write on this like transparent, uh, like tinted paper thing, tinted thing I had. Like I tried to scribble onto the lens with like a marker that destroyed the lens. It didn't help. Uh, I think what I ended up doing is, uh, sacrificing a, a polarizing filter for, uh, for one of the bigger cameras. And then just cut that one out with like a power with my Swiss knife and then just taping that on and that worked. Nothing like that FPV MacGyver work in the pressure spot. <clears throat> yeah, I'm sorry. Huh? 
Sorry, my girlfriend just got really excited as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, sorry, you were saying. Um, just um, like having a MacGyver something on the spot. Um, but dealing with the commercial, like, first of all, is did you reach out to um, Shredbots or did they hit you up or what was the story behind that? Um, no, Shredbots found me through um, through my uh, YouTube video. Uh, it's my uh, Happy New Year from the Gap, Gap 707 family. That was in... Yeah, no, I think we all know that. I think we've all seen that one about 10 times. Yeah, I think so. And, and I think that was the, the, bigger, the biggest kick for me. Uh, I think all the things that I've ever done, uh, I've worked with, um, with all sorts of people now, um, Shredbot. Uh, one of the bigger ones recently were some people who were putting together a program for National Geographic. And um, those guys, too, like, saw the, the YouTube video and were like, oh, yeah, we could, we could use some of that. And, you know, I think that, that YouTube video made just so, so much for me. It's just, you know, beyond belief. Yeah, man. I think, I mean, I think every FPV pilot down deep kind of imagines that moment, like that FPV YouTube, you wake up the next morning and you're like, oh, wow, you know. But is it a myth, though? I don't know. Like, I know a couple of people now who, who have gone through it, but I don't think there are, like, how many pilots have a uh, one million view plus video? I think there's uh, there's myself. I think there's uh, Nurk. Five tops. There's, uh, I think Johnny's recent video went super, yeah, super probably. crazy. I mean, he may be up to a million. Um, and then, like, on your own, and then... Maybe a few more that I, but yeah, I mean, the only people I, I know directly, I think is Nurk and myself. Do you think there's going to be, you know, like you're in the inner circle and like Jordan's done the Solomon ski stuff, like Nurk's got his own stuff going. Do you think there's going to be a future for capturing cinematic content with FPV quads? Like more so than just like, you know, hey, there's 10 of these guys around the world. Um, yes and no. Um, because... Um, I don't know. I was. I think it's one of those things where people are banking on it and thinking, like, like the mini quad, is like drone, what drone racing was probably two, three years back, where people thought, ah, oh, it's the next big amazing thing, and we all should like invest super crazy amounts of money, and it's going to be amazing, and we're going to become millionaires. I uh, I think a lot of people are sort of jumping in into this one uh, in the same way and thinking oh, it's going to be so crazy and oh my god and we got all these talented pilots and we're going to blow people's minds yes and no uh, first of all because if you're a video production um, let's, let's put it for snowboarding for example um, snowboarding crews are usually very small there's like a rider maybe two and then there's a filmer like a main filmer and then there's a second angle that's a small crew and then the, if you have a bit more funding usually you'll get a photographer Okay, so yeah, three filmer guys and two to three writers. And then if you come along with your mini quad, you're like this this hooligan who comes along who's going to get into the shots. <laughs> That's the first thing of the other guys. Uh, and you're, they're not sure what you're going to produce. Uh, it's hard to be, it's hard to earn the trust of the people that you're working with. And it just takes, I guess, years of showing people that, hey, I can, I can do this kind of shot, this kind of shot, this kind of shot. It's yeah. not like... And you just show up like and do it. You know, like yeah. it's like a switch. It's not like a maybe. Absolutely. And it's usually always, it has to be some sort of passion project of the, the director to bring you in. It has to be the director that just sees something crazy and has this crazy imagination or thought about something, you know, beyond what was usually doable. 
uh, it takes someone to think outside the box to hire you. It doesn't take, you can't, it's not a standard thing. Like for drones, usual drone work is like very simple. Hey, yeah. can you fly over this straight? Can, can you, you fly can over this? Can you take a real estate picture, <laughs> like even down to, yeah. you know, nothingness? <laughs> they're, they're, like drone shots are very standardized, I think, in some sense. And people will hire you almost blindly if they know, okay, you've done some pretty good stuff. And okay, you're going to do the usual lifts, rights, up, downs, and, um, and straight down, straight up. And sure, easy. But for the mini quads, there's just so many degrees of freedom that people don't understand what's doable and what how they can use that yeah i i definitely agree with that i think that like the shots that are capable like lengthy shots not just like one rotation around a skier but like the kind of lines you could link up and use as a cinematic tool are through the roof and so untapped right now mm. i know? think i think there's a lot of a lot of potential um i said now it's just sort of a matter to find the, the right partners who are willing to vouch for you and bring you on shoots and and you know, trust you and make things happen. Um, as as FPV pilots, sometimes I think everybody is a bit um, uh, how should I say? Um, everybody everybody just sits there and just hopes that someday uh, a good gig is going to come up. But to be very honest, I think the the filming industry and whatnot is just takes takes a lot of work. It takes work um, both administratively. Uh, to, to find the gigs and on the technical side to make things happen and then you know authorizations once you start doing a bigger bigger job it's more complicated always because it's not just uh, unregulated airspace it's just something more complicated you need authorizations you need this you need that there's a lot of stuff around it's not just go out and fly yeah it's like you know it's a business side of it it's once that you turn it into like that aspect it's like the do all this stuff so you can do a little bit of what you love, but you know, it's super rewarding if you get to work on cool projects and whatnot. Um, Absolutely. Do you feel, you know, dealing with that Avenue that in terms of like a production or like from a director standpoint and what you're dealing with that you're limited by only being able to carry a GoPro or something of that size? Yes. Yeah. The, the GoPro is definitely a big bummer for, for a lot of things. Um, like you, you will never probably have a shot at like cinema with with a GoPro. Yeah. Unless, unless, unless again, you know, someone wants to do something really, really crazy. Um, it would be better to have a quad that flies something bigger. But the problem is that as soon as you fly something bigger, you need a bigger quad, and then you, you lose the competitive advantage that the GoPro had. That it was small, and that you know the mini quad is small, and you can fly it through anywhere. It's it's rel relatively safe to crash. You can you can slam it into walls and keep flying. <laughs> and um, if you, as soon as you have a bigger quad, if you want to lift a DSLR or whatnot, it's if you hit anything, uh, the quad's going down. It's broken. You, you're gonna have to car have a, accident a spare price quad. level. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's more expensive. It's more dangerous if you're flying around people, dude. Don't don't hit anybody. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because seriously, you're gonna you're gonna seriously hurt somebody. Yeah, I've always wondered that, like, you know, for us in FPV, like, every time a new GoPro drops, we're so excited. It's the newest and the hottest, but in the commercial world, it would be, if we could have, you know, like, a black magic in the size of that, that would be unreal or something. A little, a little sure, red, red action camera. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if you've seen it. I think the, the guys over there, Beverly, Beverly Hills Aerial, they, they flew a red with, like, a uh, next I did class see that, red. yeah. It looks pretty, looked pretty insane, but... Yeah. When I see stuff like that, I'm just wondering, well, what are you going to use that for? Are you going to use it 
to fly, you know, um, three feet behind a car at 100 miles an hour? Mm, maybe you have the budget to potentially crash and destroy that thing yeah. or destroy the car. But I don't know. It just feels like you're um, you're cornering yourself in a world of risk um, where you're just, you know, you can't um, you can't be as imaginative and as free flowing as you would be with with a mini quad and a GoPro. And your oh shit handle is so much smaller. You can't just, you know, <laughs> pitch back and throttle out real quick and change like a 10-foot direction. <laughs> That's it. You got that inertia. So, yeah. It's, uh, it's tricky. Yeah, I feel like in that respect, there's like a couple disconnects, you know. It would be so cool to see X-Class rigs like chasing rally cars and whatnot, but there's a lot of limitations. The risk for like commercial shoots and stuff like that, at certain points you're better just using a chase cam from like another car or something that's not going to desync or be affected by wind nearly as much or anything like that um but hopefully like i work in the commercial uav field and to me the creative side is the only part of any type of uav that's not going to be automated in like the next five mm -hmm. years everything else like an yeah. algorithm can do you know but there's you, a sensor you say that. For did, it. did you see the um i can't remember the name of the company now but a company came out with a an autonomous drone that chases you around have you seen that one? No. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna look for it. That would be if so funny it, to, to just you know like slip a tracker for that on someone's backpack in the street and not tell them and just <laughs> have this thing follow them around all day. Yeah, it's it's literally a drone. You tell it, hey, um, it 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 relies on um, like um, computer computer vision off the camera, and it just finds features, identifies 3D features, and flies around them. They have all sorts of videos. Where they like fly through the uh, through a forest, chasing somebody oh, forwards is it, and backwards, is it because that, it has cameras all around. It's not that one that like Casey Neistat did a video on with like the they looked like like six blade HQ props that could chase you around, but it wasn't very like agile, like it was kind of slow moving. That could be the one. In case, let me guess, four props. <laughs> no way! How did <laughs> yeah, you guess? Yeah. <laughs> Guideo, there you go. That's the name of them. Yeah, it's it's fully automated. So you send it up, and it identifies you, and then just does the rest of the work. Now, it's not like obviously you would. This is consumer level, right? This is something you buy and you take. You go take pictures of your holidays. Yeah, I'm pretty sure Johnny made his last video with that in the rhinos. If I yeah. had to guess. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't use this for any type of shoot, actual shoot. So, oh, I mean, we're, I think we're pretty safe still. <laughs> pretty safe, yeah. For, for a few years, at least. Yeah. Um, in terms but of... AI, AI is interesting. AI is interesting because, I mean, I don't know if you've seen, like, in terms of autonomous drones, um, DRL just recently partnered up with uh, Lockheed Martin, and they're bringing the uh, Alpha, Alpha Pilot project, which is like an AI drone race. So it's like, like DRL, like drone racing, but with uh, autonomous drones. I think that you know, tags along with that idea of this part. Pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty cool. That could be hook hook them up with Marty from Hydra and get some money going on some bets on that. <laughs> That's better on some autonomous drones. You have yeah. no idea what they're doing. But... That, that would make it all Barrio Kart too. You have like red and blue shells. They get slowed down, whatnot. Yeah. Their, their pitch angle gets limited by like 20 degrees if something happens. Totally. Um. But machines are going to beat us at some point. But 
Yeah, I'm like super excited and kind of scared for it, you know. (laughs) Life's going to be probably more convenient and easier, but uh, a bit more like emotionally stressful. I don't think biologically humans were ready for all this to happen this fast. Well, I mean, if you give us long enough, uh, we'll evolve and be part machines maybe at some point as well. Yeah, and we will definitely make an Instagram story about it along the way. (laughs) Um, Speaking of GoPros and whatnot like that, how did you delve into using Real Steady? Because for me personally, your video was the first, you know, like any Real Steady introduction I ever had. How did you first hear about it and get that whole thing going? Um. I think I I had seen um, a few clips that uh, Robert McIntosh, the guy from from Real Steady, um, I think I saw a few clips that I can't remember which pilot it was, but I think it was maybe Cody Madsen, Code Red. Uh, There was like a a quad flying through a bus, and it looked just so unreal. Someone dropped that on on some Facebook group, and it was just like, oh, what what the hell is this? Uh, Because it was all stabilized, and he's flying through two abandoned like buses like for, for in in the back window out the front window in the back window and it just looked what what the hell is this and i think that was my first introduction to it and then i i had done all sorts of research as to what it was and um like as soon as i i had some some half decent footage i sort of um just you know um reached out to the guy uh who, who makes that and um and asked him what he what he thought of this clip, for example, that I had, and if he thought that would work with Real Steady, is is that a thing? And um, you know, a few hours later, he sends along, "Hey, here's this clip back." And I'm like, "Oh, oh, okay, that's how this is going." <laughs> and he sent me back this. I think it was something from like Ibiza, one of my first ever clips that got stabilized, and um, he stabilized it, and suddenly it just created this whole new, yeah. new world of, of I can't imagine that, that experience like getting that email you know like not really knowing back then what it's going to come back if you can even do it then you get it back already and you get to watch it and you're like holy shit that looks amazing <laughs> so yeah suddenly it's like holy crap did I shoot this yeah <laughs> no way no way uh, and then from there on I sort of dabbled on a few little small videos uh, that I usually just send out to him and uh, until that that one day in the in the Alps where um, I laid down that line and I sort of sent it to him thinking, you know, it's going to be all right. The light is really good, but, you know, it's kind of shaky. Like, how can you can real steady fix that? And uh, he was like, he looked at it and um, he, t- he, he tends to not be expressive at all for stuff. And then, you know, a few hours go by and then the clip comes back <laughs> and then he's like, yeah, I think uh, I think this is a pretty good one. And then I, uh, I, I put together the video, uh, you know, like found some music. My, my girlfriend helped me find some music. I, I always struggle to find music. We put that thing together, sent it off, and then he was actually the one to drop it on Reddit. And then that's where I got a, a million views like two days later. So, just crazy, yeah. man! Like such a such a cool moment. I mean, like you're so. It's not even like like that lucky, but I feel like if someone sent an email like that to Robert McIntosh today, they'd have to have some pretty crazy clip, you know, like you really got in there at a time of like, just, he's probably like, oh, this is awesome, you know, because he was just doing like the kind of proximity, more like Muscle Beach style, not like really covering ground with real steady kind of videos back then. Yeah, I don't think, well, I mean, I don't think back then 
um, the the long range world was, was much of a thing. Yeah. Uh, there were the some of the wing guys obviously had done ginormous distances, but they never fly very low. So I think that was it came at a good moment in time where people suddenly realized, holy shit, we can fly that low that far. Because it just looks unreal. You're just flying along the ridge and going and going and going and going and going. And that was the main comment I got back from people. Like, I thought this video was never going to end. How are you just keeping link? I was just scared that the drone was going to drop at some point. And You're like, me too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I was, yeah, I was, like, this was before Crossfire for me. This this was actually... That was going to be my next comedy. question, was, wasn't that on FR Sky? Yeah, I think it was a, um, what's the name of those? It was the L, L9R, which was their long range one. It was not that one. The L9R is actually really good. As long as you, like, there's no, no obstruction in the way, nothing, it, it does pretty well. I think it was the X8R, X8R. It's like a giant receiver. It's a 2.4 receiver. That's a bit better than the, the XSRs and the racing receivers that we have nowadays. Yeah, yeah. So it was a bit better than the, the standard racing stuff, but it, um, it was like the link was not good. Like you were going out and it sort of would take a dip. Oh, it's coming back. Oh, oh, it's coming back down again. Oh, watch out, watch just out. Eat, eating your popcorn, <laughs> just waiting for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was an experience. Uh, but I guess that's where I learned to. That's how I learned to fly long range. Uh, I, I flew like that, even with with, with shady links, because I, I knew I knew the link and I knew where it was going to do well, where it was going to do bad. And look at the environments. Try to keep the line of sight. Uh, always make sure I'm above things, um, but try to stay as low as possible. <laughs> yeah, and, be- uh, better video. Yeah, and try to make the magic happen. But it's um, the world has really changed in uh, between, like um, with the uh, democratization of, of Crossfire, of you know just better gear, better VTXs, better everything. It's just yeah. Yeah. Do you feel like over time too you? You know, like, you know, spots seem closer than they used to over time. Like, I used to look at certain mountains and be like, that is so far. And now I'm like, oh, yeah, that's not a big deal, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, do you get desensitized to the distance as you fly more and more of the mountains? I I don't think so. I um, I like to to look at a uh, sort of like a risk factor on, on, on all these things that I do. Um, so if you can recover the quad that I, I'll fly out distances, I, I don't care. As long as I know that, hey, I could crash it and just go pick it back up. If I, it will, you know, it might take me half an hour, an hour to walk out there. It'll be fun-ish. There, so okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, but then once you, you know, you start having to risk the beans, is it could, but it could be just 20 meters from you. If you're flying, for example, over a cornfield, I don't know if you've ever tried flying over a high, highly grown field, you know that if, if you ditch the quad in there and the battery unplugs, you are done. Yeah. That quad is not coming back. <laughs> USB stick in a box of Legos, man. You're done. Right. It's it's not happening. Or then, but then that's the same way you, I look at look these mountain flights. Some of them are actually really close, but I know there's a huge risk because there's a freezing river in the middle, and I'm not swimming through that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so I fly. I fly super cautiously. You're and, not going to um, take the Jordan route and rent a wetsuit and spend two days in a river. <laughs> I don't know. Like most of the flying, which is, which is pretty funny. Like most of the flying, most of the YouTube videos I've ever put out are usually the fruit of hiking. Um, you know, taking a lot of time to find to get to the good places, and then once I'm there, I fly once or twice max, and then I pack up and I go again. Yep. And so I don't I don't have hours to be there and and go looking for a quad. 
it, that just that never happens usually. So, Especially too if you're traveling and kind of on a schedule. Yeah, that's usually the thing. I'm usually all the places I go to. I'm traveling with other people and who may not be, you know, quad quad friendly or mildly quad friendly. Or either way, they, they have low <laughs> low patience for you to to go recover your quad if you crashed it. So yeah. always be careful and make sure the quad comes back. Yeah. Um, going back to the real steady stuff, have you, well, a, so you sent your first clip off to Robert and the, like the other one too, at this point, do you now stabilize your own clips when you do use it or do you still send it off? Like, are you a wizard of real steady settings or? I guess I am. Um, uh, yeah, I do. I do my own real steady work now. Uh, but he's usually still the man to talk to, uh, because he does this day in, day out and develops the software. So um, he still, he definitely has the upper hand when it comes to these, because some, some clips you just send it through and it just does not want to have it. And then it takes a bit of, you know, help to make it do the right thing. Um, but, um, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's a craft that you have to learn. But once you, once you know it... It's just um, another thing to do. It works really well. No big deal. Yeah. I mean, honestly, now, now I can just look at a clip and I already... Like before I send it through processing, I already set everything up how it needs to be, send it out once, and boom, it comes, and it's good, no problems. Because I already know, I already look at it, and I, I see, okay, this section is probably going to have a little bit of an issue, and then you already already do the, the, the right tune-ups to, to make it work. Yeah. Um, do you, like I've just wondered this, do you know what kind of a computer setup Robert McIntosh edits his stuff on? Is it just um, like, you know, Watson no or some shit? Because watching him make those videos <laughs> where he's like, you know, it's scrubbing it in real time. <clears throat> and uh, he's moving around in real steady in real time. You know, it's not like rendering, not looking chattery or anything. It's, you know, and I've looked at, you know, uh, like late night uh, dives into computers that video editor use in Hollywood that have, you know, like 180 gigs of video memory and stuff like that. I've always wondered if he <laughs> if he uses something like that, do you know? I know he's in video production and he has been for for a number of years even even before mini quads were a thing and I think he yeah I mean he's probably been flying longer than any of us um he was one of with with the old guys still um on those uh I don't know flame wheels putting FPV on that and trying to fly it around and it's fun when you have a chat with him and he's like yeah I have this uh yeah I have this clip from 2013 yeah from from testing this when you're talking to him yeah i'm thinking about you know soft mounting or or putting on a different camera and he's like yeah here's a clip from like <laughs> from the from the from from the stone age for us and he's like yeah here, here. have a look i tried i tried it back in the stone age it didn't work oh okay i guess uh... yeah i really need to get him on the show like that's such a cool story and it's such a cool tool to use especially for our hobby such yeah, a good tool yeah and it it's 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 a deal you know change it's a game changer for us because suddenly this all this um all these gimbals and stuff you just don't need them, but you need to shoot for for the software as well you need it has uh things that you need to to work with like i mean if you were shooting with a gimbal, you'd have to work with your gimbal as well yeah Certain things you cannot do with the gimbal so it takes, um, um takes a bit of practice. Have you seen any like reaction towards real steadied footage in the commercial world, like from you know real video production teams? Like, do they? Is it like frowned upon? Does the look of it not appease them, or is it any different? No, they love the the look of it. Um, okay. Like GoPros have this 
have the the horrible fisheye look to it, and people people don't like GoPros for that. Uh, as soon as you linearize everything, uh, people usually uh, find the footage way more appealing. Yeah. Um, and also, you'll notice uh, as soon as you flatten the image, uh, perspectives look way different. Um, you're like the fisheye completely flattens. You know what's the 3D look of things, like what's close to you, what's far away from you. As soon as you flatten it, it just it just looks way way more real. Uh, is I guess my way, to, way my way to put it. And then once you stabilize it, it's obviously a, an extra level. And um, I've worked with companies who were like, okay, uh, we will just let you do this stabilization magic that you do there because it just looks awesome and we can't do it. So, <laughs> so you just deal with that part and just send us the stabilized stuff and uh, we'll take it from there. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like your, it's part of your like package deal or whatever. Like we want, we want that video we saw on YouTube kind of video. Well, that, that is actually a hard, hard one to, to bring across, which I, I'm trying to factor into what, when I like quote, quote people who, who want to have me out, I try to factor in, okay, hey, I'm, you know, I'm probably, if you want the best quality footage, um, you should probably pay me for like a whole extra day of, of sitting at home, uh, stabilizing through some of the best clips. And uh, people don't necessarily get it. They think, hey, I'm just going to get the footage and it's come out of the camera and it's going to be great. Um, but it's not that simple. Yeah, there's a whole extra step. Um, in terms of dealing with commercial gigs, it like monetarily, is it the same pay as like a photographer? Like, is it worth your time? Um, could yeah. it be something that could be a career if you could get enough gigs? No, I think it totally is. Um, like, I, I try to formulate my time to not be too crazy on the time involvement just because I um, uh, actually I put it I don't want to be traveling all the time I like being at home as well and I have stuff to do at home I have a girlfriend here I, the aim is not to be just to live 90% of the time away from her so I try to pace pace myself but I think if you were if you really went out for it you could you could definitely make a living out of it and I think um, if I if I pushed um, myself a bit more, I could live exclusively off that if I wanted to. It's just, um, commitment. Yeah. I don't feel the need to really push because I already have, uh, let's say a, a number of clients that usually come back to me and we just, I can make it work with those guys. Yeah. And then how do you balance that with racing? <clears throat> you know, like, I feel like you have such an interesting avenue in FPV because you have this kind of like legendary long range presence with like a cinematic avenue, but you're also like, you know, a DRL pilot, one of the most notable faces in FPV. How do you balance, like, the two totally opposite types of flying? Um, it's hard, um, to be honest. And I feel I feel sometimes that I'm not being the best racer uh, that I could be. And at the same time, I feel like I'm not really the, the best. Let the record state that <laughs> Gab just, like, burped. He's not about to cry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... I don't know. It, it, it's hard to balance both because um, you're working with people who have who schedule shoots um, and want this whole project to work and there's weather and then there's coordination and whatnot. And then suddenly they're like, OK, well, my dates are this to this. Can you make it? And it's like, well, that's, you know, the, the date the you know, it's the week just before the super important DRL race. What am I supposed to do? Just bail on them or or should I? Like I should really be practicing here if I wanted to be a good racer. But at the same time, I don't want to let these guys down because if you let down a client, uh, they're probably not going to hire you again. Or if you let down, 
the people that you're you're working on a project with, and they're you're just like, ah, oh, I can't make it. It's just a disappointment. So you're hurting yourself in both both situations. So I'd love to be like um, people like who do just one or the other sometimes. But at the same time, it keeps me sharp and it keeps me motivated because like now is the off season, so it's awesome. I can just do gigs and and not worry about racing. But as soon as the schedule picks up again, I'm gonna have to put those uh, all those filming gigs aside and uh, and focus on the racing. Do you do you really enjoy the racing? Um, like the same amount, less or more than the freestyle? But like, is it something you truly, really love going to? And like the pressure of it in the competition? I I really love racing, yeah, because I'm someone who likes challenges, and I think it's not necessarily the competition side of things. It's more uh, for me the big my biggest competitor is just myself. I like I like um, taking on taking myself on with the challenges that I have and what I can and can't do and try to face what I can't do and try to improve on that. And um, drone racing is one of those sports that works really well in that sense because a lot of people say yeah you just need to fly your own race and it's not about the others and uh, yes but no but yes but no and then you're sort of bouncing back and forth. Um, trying to to face your opponents in in the the best way possible it's hard um to do that but um you know um i like racing it's it's for me it's really the the mental challenge is is the good part it's uh it's how you prepare yourself mentally for a race physically how you how to train there's a lot a lot of depth into it and drone racing has been is such a young sport that a lot of people do it just like hey i i go fly on sundays yeah I, I fly a bit, I set up a track, I fly around a bit, and I'll do it again on Monday if there's a race on Wednesday, uh, sort of thing. And you just roll up and do it. Uh, but the truth is, uh, any other type of professional sport has athletes who've trained for you know decades to be where they are. And um, they have specific routines, specific drills that they do. And um, drone racing is just at the birth of that. So there's a lot to explore. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I ski on the weekend, so I'm pretty much pro. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, but at, at the other, at the, at the same time, people think that hey, when when I'm going on a shoot, on a snowboarding shoot or any type of shoot, they think yeah, it's going to be fun, it's going to be great, you're going to be there, and uh, you can fly all this cool stuff, do some chasing. Um, yes and no. Um, it's like drone racing. Suddenly, if you're doing, if you're going on a race on a race with friends, um, sure, you could go race it easy. You crash, good. You win, you win some, you win some, you lose some, you lose some. Doesn't matter. Um, but as soon as you go into a world championship, suddenly, suddenly <laughs> the pressure's on and suddenly it matters how well you do. And then you're like, oh, I should really prepare. And then once you go up there, maybe you don't do so well. And then you, you know, you hate yourself for, oh, why, why did I just slam into that gate? I could have just blown a bit more to the left. Or, and th- all these things get to you and it, it's hard to deal with it at the same time. And the same way when you go out to a shoot and you get, you know, you do a six-hour plane ride, you, you do three hours driving, you get heli-dropped, and then you do the ski-do, and then you're up there on the bloody mountain, and the guy's going to jump once, and you better nail that shot. If you don't nail the shot, well, yeah. you, you just lost a day. It's going to be an awkward and, handshake at the end of that day. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when the pressure's on, the pressure's on, and you have to, you have to love dealing with that yeah. or be good at dealing with that and if, if you if you're not then it's not the right job for you and i'm sure one helps with the other you know like they're different kinds of stress but either way it's just teaching you to mitigate your stress and be able to like stay clear-headed 
in a diverse kind of way under pressure, whether it be, you know, one shot wonder with Torstein or DRL TV kind of moment. Sure. And there's, you know, risk involved as well. Like the guy, the guy is jumping off a cliff. Uh, yeah, do you ever wonder so, that? Like think, you're like thinking about their risk versus yours? Because like I chased some paragliders, and that was the first time I really thought about it. And I was like, "Wow, they have so much to lose compared to me." Yeah, no, I I, I totally think about it, and um, we have some close calls. But snowboarding is easy because um, no matter what happens, I will, I'm way faster than they are, so I can get out the way. Um, so I've had a few close calls. Are you like you're too close? Ah, uh, bail, whatever. Yeah, lose the shot. I don't care. Um, but, uh, I don't know how much, you know, how responsible people are going to be and how long it's going to take until someone hits somebody. But, uh, you get, you gotta, you know, see the risks and, uh, make sure to mitigate those. So in some, some places it's relatively simple. You just bail in some places you need to set up, set up something beforehand. Like here's where you can fly. Here's where you cannot fly. Yeah. For example, one of the sketchiest shoots I've ever done were with, um, with some wingsuit guys. And um, I've not done one again, <laughs> just because it, it was it was just a huge risk. Um, like I I think I had a I had a high KV 5S setup, and um, it obviously involved me flying to the top of this mountain and then pulling up really close to these guys who were standing on the bo- the edge of the cliff. And the moment that they jumped off the cliff, like my heart dropped. I'm like, holy. It, yeah, you're just waiting to you. What am I even doing here? <laughs> and and I, obviously, I had like a camera tilt like 50 degrees because that's the only way I was keeping up with them. And then you're going, you like I'm trying to follow them, and you're just gunning it like like 80 percent all just chasing behind and trying to make the best out of it. And again, it's it's a very short time window. The shot needs to happen. Pressure's on, and um, there's just so much risk involved. Again, places where you, where you can fly and left behind is relatively safe. And places where you can't fly, don't fly in front of them because, first of all, you'll spook them out. Second, you may hit them. And, yeah. you know, how, how aerodynamics works, it's really hard to... Uh, it's really... It, it's hard to put yourself in the right place at the right time. So Definitely. And who wants to live with that, you know? Like, ruin FPV for yourself emotionally for the rest of your life. Yeah. So... I, I do, I, but I, that's why I like the, the snowboarders because they, they take a risk every time they jump, but it's a measured risk. Like they go out and it's all about the, the you know, good vibes, fun, and that's what it's at for me as well. And uh, where the magic happens is when, when I'm feeling a good vibe and the riders are feeling a good vibe and we're making something happen. That's when things work out. It's all about the vibes, man. Moral story of life. Yeah. <laughs> um, totally. I mean, e- even in racing. Yeah. And I mean, in racing too, you seem like, you know, your presence on DRL is like very calm and collected and you seem like you have a pretty good emotional equilibrium, you know, like whether it's been a good race or a bad race, your reaction is like within plus or minus 15%. <laughs> it's funny. They, they, they clip together a bunch of, a bunch of stuff. Like it was, I, I'm not even sure that they, they shared it yet, but I think it was like a, uh, a comparison between Nurk and, and me. And it was like after the first race, you see Nurk on the left going, yes, yes, and he's cheering. And I'm just sitting there. And, you know, I just, like, I, I lost that heat. So, okay, I'm just sitting there. Next heat, uh, I win the heat. And then Nurk's still going, ah, 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 he's getting annoyed because I'm not, And I'm still there, you know, yeah, yeah that was a good heat. And then he goes on, next one, boom, I, I win again. And then I'm just sitting there, yeah, buddy, yeah. 
and he's like, ah, <laughs> like, yeah. annoyed and, and angry. But um, I, I guess that's where, where I perform the best is when is uh, when I'm calm and collected and I, I know the state that I need to be in to perform well. And all I do between heats is get myself back into that state. Because like a race is a huge adrenaline dump and you do not want that adrenaline dump to get the better of you. And if I may ask, how do you put yourself into that? Like quick hot yoga sessions in between heats or what's your... Yeah, for sure. It was your mental little, process to calm yourself down. Roll out a yoga mat, you know, get... Yeah, some earbuds. <laughs> take some clothes off. Yeah. Get my DRL yoga pants on. Yeah, exactly. Um, how do I do that? Um, so it's, it's um, I don't know, I guess some combination of like meditation techniques, breathing techniques that help me uh, settle and be where I need to be. I have like different sets of, of stuff that I do to either calm myself down or to hype myself up, depending on what the situation is. Um, you need to be able to gauge yourself, like what state am I in now? Am I in a state where I'm super hyped up? Am I in a stage where I'm, you know, too calm? That has actually happened to me because I'm, you know, it's, I'm, I'm not perfect either. It took me, it took me a whole, I don't know, a whole, you know, season or two to sort of get that, um, get those tricks along and they're really essential to how how i fly now on on the league and i think a good part of why why i am why i am where i am and um it has taken me quite some time to sort of understand who i am and how i respond to things so yeah depending on the situation you do different things to get yourself in that perfect state of mind such an advanced way to look at it but such a good like you make total logical sense you know it's like you were saying get rid of the technical stuff so you can focus on the finite things like that's a version of that kind of ethos yeah in yeah if you're flying you know what really matters is expressing something so try to forget about the technical and just fly your heart out and in racing it's the same thing like what really matters at this point in time you need to make a strategical decision sure uh, so you make that decision, and then once that's off, then forget about the other races. All that matters is the race that's coming up to you now. And the better, you just have to be in the best state yeah. um, to face that. Like, I don't know, if you're going to an exam or whatnot, where, how do you go up to it? Well, be prepared, and then once you're prepared, then be confident. Yeah. Make sure to study that last hour right before the test. <laughs> just cram it in. <laughs> make sure, make sure to like, spend the whole night before, just, you know? Yeah. Just chisel those equations into your TI-84 somewhere, hide them away. Um, Do you think it's coincidence that in DRL, you know, like you, Jordan, Nurk are all multifaceted pilots? You know, because there's there's kids like Vanover and Minchan and uh, like Evan Turner now and Soren that are just crushing it in terms of speed. But uh, I think they're like being able to adapt and quick decision-making skills is maybe not at the same level as someone that is more FPV mature. Not doesn't have to be age-wise, but just like has, you know, dipped their feet in different parts of FPV more consistently and has been in more diverse situations with a quad. So that's, that's an interesting question. And uh, we've asked that question several times because it's kind of surprising that uh, year after year, uh, DRL brings on new talent. And it so happens that it's always the same bunch of guys at the top. <laughs> yeah, how it's come, all, the, all the old what, farts. What, 
<laughs> yeah, and the old farts are just are just back at it. And wh- why are they are they still here? Um, so we wondered about that. Um, I think, for example, like long range flying helps you a lot with um, knowing what you can do, like estimating uh, what you can and can't do, because you do not want to go down. Whereas a lot of these guys who practice on racetracks or part, you know, practice on simulators, have this very aggressive attitude towards racing, where uh, make it or break it, and if you if you hit something, you crash, and it's no big deal. It's just a quad. Um, I don't feel that way. To me, you know, every quad is is hours of work that I put into it. Maybe not on DRL, but I still fly it the same way. I still fly it as if it was hours of work that I put into it. And you know, a part of myself that's out there that I'm controlling, and I I do not want to destroy that thing. Um, so it, I don't. Know. Now I don't know if that's really the 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 main part of why the oldies are still the goodies. Um, I think a lot of this also younger generation hasn't necessarily had a chance on, on DRL yet um, because a lot of them are just too young to be on the league. Yeah, that's but true, But things too. are going to be interesting because, um, well, Alex Vanover just qualified himself um, through the uh, the multi-GP, uh, U.S. Nationals. He just qualified himself to be the next, um, the next DRL pilot, which is great. We're going to have some really cool competition coming our way with him in, coming around. Um, but then it's going to be interesting to see how that approach of pure the pure racer um, comes across on DRL. Yeah, but, that'll be an interesting sight with honestly, him. Especially. I think it's just a coincidence. Honestly, I think it's just a coincidence because if you look at uh, Nub, Nub uh, got second place in last year's season, and he came on as a rookie, and uh, he he's not been known for any long range flying, for any freestyle flying. He's just a racer. And he came on, he, he showed really consistent uh, flying, fast flying, and he made it all the way to the end. So I think if you're, I think our, us old guys are going to sort of get weeded out at some point. I think maybe we had a, I don't know, how should I put it, a strategic advantage at the start because we knew what risk was and how to deal with it and how to deal with uncertainties because that's what DRL is. DRL is uncertainties. It's it's these dark patches in the track that are not lit up and that you know there's cables <laughs> but you know that you need to cut it as close as possible because that's the fastest bloody line yeah and you know it's knowing that there's this camera this you know twenty thousand dollar camera that's on the rail that's you know zipping by when you're when you're going through that tunnel <laughs> and you can't open the line too much because at some point there's going to be the camera but you need to open the line because that's the racing line and then you need to cut through these blind turns and whatnot you know, those are the like the unknowns that you have to face all the time that are hard to deal with if you're a pilot that's just used to flying, you know, multi-GP tracks. Yeah. There's so it takes maturity and um, and risk management, and maybe some of us, some of us old oldies were just better at that and fast at the same time. So that's why we're we're still around. But I think the hardcore racers at some point have to beat us. I'm like, come on! If you come out with like you're a young kid, you have a lot of you know really fast reflexes. And you've just been training at this for years and years and years. Your dad's been pushing you. Uh, you've not had any any other you know life worries to think about. Honestly, yeah, yeah, they, they're coming. They're coming. Even just like Vanover going to South Korea and like him and Minchia getting together and practicing against each other, like that's some next level like forward training thought and just trying to you know just be insanely fast, just dedication. Well, I mean, us DRL pilots do that sometimes as well. I know that, like, um, Nurk and Jaws, uh, they live 
they both live in the same place, so they, they train a lot together as well and do those sessions where they're just back and forth all the time. Yeah, those warehouse videos, man, I see those. Yeah, those yeah. warehouse videos and those park videos. And, like, are they are they becoming better pilots because of it? For sure, for sure. And I th But I thought, at the same time, I had... I didn't really have anyone to train with uh, on the racer on the on the racer three um, for all those years, and I thought I was going to be at a disadvantage, but still did pretty all right. Yeah, so. the, guy, the guy that practices in a bubble and then shows up and is all right. <clears throat> um, <laughs> so I guess I guess maybe just practicing with your with your worst opponent is is not always. I mean, it's probably a good thing. You know, you, you need you need a reality to check here and there, um, but is it? Do you really want to be just working with that guy all the time? I don't know, but it's going to be interesting. Like I live super. I've moved to Vancouver recently, so I'm, I'm pretty close to uh, to Jet Jordan. Um, yeah. That we're going to be hanging out. Speaking of Jordan, uh, do you still think about that power loop gate from two seasons ago? No. Oh. <laughs> 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 no, we 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 refer to that to that that specific feature quite a lot of. Quite a lot of times. I mean, it's mostly the way that uh, Jordan likes to overtake people at the very end of the race. Yeah. And you know what? We found, well, we Just sort of found out how he does it. Uh, we think we think that it's something to do with uh, managing the battery a bit differently. Like when, because you when you you know that when you really push your battery, um, you know you you use a lot of a lot of those mods and your voltage drops. But if you use like 90% of it, you still get roughly the same current draw, you get the same power, but you don't deplete the battery as fast. And that means that for that last little moment of the race, you get a little like, bit of Literally extra. the last last 2% yeah. or whatever. <laughs> yeah, because we do hammer those batteries. Like you'd think it's only a one minute race, but we're full throttle, like almost through the whole thing. We just let off, you know, just before the turn, just to set it up properly and stuff. But otherwise, it's just full bore. So, um, yeah, if you if you know how to manage your battery, you can you get that little extra little competitive edge at the very 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 Damn very it, end Jordan. of the track. And he's he's done it as again in uh, in Saudi in Saudi um, for the World Championship this year, where he just just edged out uh, Willie from from being in the finals. That was. One of those crazy heats again, where Willie was just in front and Jordan's just behind, chasing and chasing, and just, takes him, and then Willie takes him back. Just let him and run with it just, like a fish on a line. Go ahead, go ahead, run with it. I'll yeah, get you. Let him go. Yeah. And then through the last feature of the last lap, he takes him, boom, and then just Willie was Willie was on the ground crying. He couldn't, couldn't believe it. Yeah, that's that's when you know you got you got jetted. <laughs> you got jetted. For sure. <laughs> um, and then my final topic I wanted to talk about is how has the lipo fire changed how you charge? And if you want to just give a quick description of how that or like what happened and how it happened. Oh wow, the deep questions. Um, that's 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 what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's hard to deal with these lipos because people don't realize how dangerous these suckers are. Uh, you think, yeah, I charge them up and again and again and again and again. I've never had a problem, so it's probably safe, right? And the problem is if, um, you, like, your batteries will start uh, giving you signs that they're sort of dying. Like, at some point, you'll start charging, and if you monitor internal resistance, you'll see one of the cells, for example, has a lower, has a higher internal resistance. So that means that cell is not functioning as well. And it takes way more effort from the charger to charge that specific cell compared to the other ones. So, for example, if your routine is just to 
to not use not balance charge and just parallel charge, at some point you could end up overcharging a cell. And some some people like if you watch videos, some people like light their batteries on fire and like they chop them and they think that it's cool to like uh, puncture them once they're dead and stuff like that. You don't realize, but when the, the cell is discharged and you puncture it, it, it's actually not much of a thing. Like it will, it will do a bit of a flame, a bit of a bit of uh, smoke and stuff. It's usually, I'll say, okay, and it's dealable. But when you overcharge a cell, that's when it comes really lethal. Uh, if you overcharge a cell and like all the cells in your battery, if you have a sick cell, and and all of those cells go up, you have you have a bomb on hand, and that thing can literally ruin your apartment. I mean, that's what what happened to me. I had um, batteries that were getting old. I put those on on charge, and I don't. I wasn't looking too closely if it was like balanced charging or not charging. I think, I think it was the problem was the charger. I had one of those Chinese chargers, and I never, I can never quite figure That's out if it was balanced charging or not. Those damn Chinese yeah. chargers. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know if it, it was balanced charging or not, or or standard charging, and um, I think that was that was the culprit at the end, and that's. That's how that battery went up. It was just getting old, and one of the cells just got overcharged, and it shouldn't have gone that high, and I wasn't fast enough to, to be there and, and take care of it. So how how do I do it now? Well, I only buy in the individual chargers. For example, those little ISDT, was it something? Yeah, I can't yeah. remember the name of it. I think it, I think it but is ISDT. ISDTs, and then you can, you can, can charge all the batteries individually. People say that, oh, you can parallel charge safely. I know you can parallel charge safely. You just take more of a risk. I don't want to take a risk. So, yeah. And less uh, learn, battery you know. monitor. Because I don't know, all like your people will say, well, my, you know, my, my laptop, my DJI, my whatnot, my phone, everything has lipos inside. But all those batteries are constantly monitored. Those are usually smart batteries and they have an internal um, voltage checking system. And that will shut off if the battery gets overcharged. Um, but our lipos for, for quads don't have that at all, so it's very easy to overcharge it and, and cause a fire. So that's why I think it's very important to balance charge, just because it's the only way of knowing what the status of each cell is. So I always charge, you know, parallel charge. Oh no, don't, I do not parallel charge. Individually, individually charge every cell, and uh, just monitor the IR when packs are getting old. Uh, put them away when they're they get start getting damaged. Also discharge them and recycle them. Um, when you charge, always stay in the same room. Like if I have a desk here, I'll usually charge like on the desk, or literally like next to me. I I won't go away from from a pack that's charging. Um, yeah, these simple simple rules um, that will get you really far. I think. Um, also, yeah, also charging on a non-inflammable surface. I think that's a big deal as well. Yeah. Don't charge on a wooden table. Um, get a, get some sort of like a metal tray or something. So if if the battery does go up, it's not going to light the whole thing on fire. Make sure there's nothing on top of your b- batteries that are charging. Don't charge in a cupboard. Don't charge in a shelf, because if a bat- if the fire starts, like the back of the shelf is going to take on fire, and the top of it's going to take on fire, and you're just yeah. yeah. Before you know it, everything's on fire, and you can't deal with it anymore, and your whole your whole house burns down. Tell me what you think of this. Uh, it's not my idea. Christian Avedon had this idea, and I thought it was genius. It was a charging station, and you put, you know, like four cinder blocks or whatever, so it's enclosed, maybe like too high. You charge in the middle of it, and then above it, you hang a bag, like a thin plastic bag filled with sand, 
So if it ever does go up, it'll just burn the plastic bag and dump the sand into the cinder block enclosure. Yeah, so I've done I've done some some little just reading up on that, and um, I I think the the conclusion of that was that the sand is not necessarily a very good stopper. Um, sand will do okay if you have a small fire, but the problem is um, sand sort of if there's gases because there's a lot of gases that come out of the battery, and then once you dump it closed, the gases sort of accumulate, and then you can get the whole thing just fly out if there's like a little explosion or something. So I think sand definitely helped um, if you've got nothing else. But I think honestly, the cinder blocks those are those those help you like there because there's two things with, with lipos like there's the the flames, the heat. So you want to make sure that you don't torch anything else. Uh, but the smoke you can't deal with the smoke unless you have one of those like um, what's the name of that box? Hobby Hobby King make uh, make a box that has a filter at the top so that the the smoke that comes out of it is non um, non toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously a great solution as well. Uh, but um, why do I want to go with this? Um, yeah, the smoke, you can't do anything about it. Um, so even if you put on sa- sand on top, the smoke is still going to come out. So as long as you've sort of concealed the fire and made sure that your fire doesn't go anywhere, well, that's that's it. Um, and then if you, the problem is if you have like a cinder block and you have this whole big heavy setup, if the battery catches on fire and it's in your in your bedroom... Uh, you can't get the battery out, can you? No. <laughs> Are you going to start just, carrying around? You just made a kiln. <laughs> right. It's just, it's just stuck there. Um, so, I don't know. My my approach to that has usually been um, I want to be next to my battery, so if anything happens, um, I can easily have some sort of a setup that can I can just grab and just throw outside. Yeah. Be that be that like an ammo case, for example, is a good one, or just a flat um, a flat metal surface. Where you could um, just grab it and go yeah. out with it. Um, coming from the restaurant world, baking sheets work wonders. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of a bit worried, though, about the baking sheet because I did have to move those those burning batteries around and um, I sort of grabbed them as they were. So I got I got my hands burned um, trying to, to, to throw batteries out the window, but I obviously did not have a surface to to grab it by so yeah a little little sheet or something let's amend that baking sheets with wooden handles <laughs> exactly yeah. well sweet man but if you, um yeah uh, go ahead nah if, uh, you, if you had like a, a box or something i think that would be the safest option just this little box wooden like a yeah, little box a box yeah. on like the garage on a concrete floor or something with high ceilings just in yep. case Sweet, man. Well, uh, any sponsor shout-outs or stuff you want to announce that's coming up? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll send a big uh, big warm warm shout-out to uh, the guys who have been supporting me for all this time. Um, uh, I work with uh, Hobbywing. They make one of the best motors and ESCs that I've had the chance to work with. Azure, props. Um, Tattoo for batteries. And TBS for, like, all the, all the link um, the link quality, the video, the RS, RF link. Um, one of my longer running sponsors who are bringing out really cool stuff. Um, Brain FPV came out with the Radix that I really love. And uh, yeah, that mostly draws it from my sponsors. Um, I think what cool stuff are you going to see from me? You're going to see a lot of, um, yeah, National Geographic. Unreal, dude. A hostile Can't wait. planet. 
Yeah. Hostile Planet is, uh, they just announced it just a few days ago. It's going to come out on the 1st of April. I don't know if that's a joke. Uh, that's an <laughs> yeah, April Fool's. Suspicious. But <laughs> suspicious. <laughs> I saw it. It was on the, on the Nat, Nat Geo website, April 1st. Uh, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, I've, um, I've done quite a few shoots with them. It's going to be sort of um, trying to show imitating animals. They're going to have all sort of FPV footage from these different birds flying through jungles over oh, over I mountains. Hoping, I was hoping it'd desert. be hippos or something. <laughs> <laughs> Underwater FPV. Yeah. Uh, cool, it's be man. Fun. That's, yeah. yeah, can't wait to see it. I really appreciate you doing the show. It was an honor, man. It was awesome meeting you at Tiny Whoop, and thanks for doing this. I know you're a busy guy traveling around, but I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on, man. It was fun chatting. Yeah, anytime. Uh, enjoy the rest of your weekend, and good luck out there. Thanks, dude. Yeah, have a good one.